Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Season's greetings and welcome once again to the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. And I am JP Mosher. And we're here to celebrate the greatest songs in modern music history. We're going to tell you what makes them great, why we think they're awesome, and why you should too. JP, how you doing today, man? Man, I am doing fantastic. And today we're kicking off one of y'all's favorite months. Y'all have told us it's movie month. Movie month! And for that, I say whoopee! <laughs> and why do I say whoopee? My life is alive! <laughs> Rob, why am I saying whoopee? Because it's Sister Act 2. It's Sister Act 2. And we, yeah, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg. That's right. And Father Ignatius. <laughs> kicking it old school for you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and we're talking about the joyful, joyful medley, the finale of Sister Act 2, featuring Lauren Hill and others. All kinds of stuff. We're going to be going deep into three different songs today. Oh, there's a, man. There's at least three songs that we're going to be kind of talking about today. Um, the first of which will be Joyful, Joyful. The second of which will be OPP by Naughty <laughs> by Nature. And the third of which will be What Have You Done For Me Lately by Janet Jackson. Um, so I can't wait to dig in. Let's this do this. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's kick it off. This is a little bit of the joyful, joyful medley from the finale of Sister Act 2. Father Ignatius, <laughs> watching on. Life is alive. No, I will, oh, I will not. It. I will not save check it. the rhyme. Not just yet. Save it, Frank K. <laughs> save it, white guy with the overall oh, shorts man. with the backwards oh, cap. Man, we'll we'll get there. Um, maybe, maybe <laughs> we will. Um, <laughs> and meet the band. We will get there. <laughs> All right, that is Joyful Joyful, the beginning of the Joyful Joyful medley from the finale of Sister Act 2, featuring Lauren Hill on those initial vocals and then a whole mess of other people. Um, and we've got the guy who did the arrangements for this movie and co has written a ton of stuff. It's hard to even sort of quantify everything that he's done, but Merv Warren is with us here. He's from uh, he's a founding member of Take Six, incredible vocal group, legendary vocal group, uh, one of the greatest to ever do it. And uh, he's with us today at the end of this episode. We're going to talk Sister Act. We're going to talk Who Would Imagine a King from, from, the, preacher's uh, from wife. the Preacher's Wife. We were going to make it a double feature. They were like, this is going to be nine hours it's, long. Yeah. We did <laughs> yeah, so, but we're going to have a great conversation with Merv uh, at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. Uh, but but let's go ahead and dig into uh, Joyful, Joyful. Um, so 
it uh, went to number seven on the uh, German 1885 <laughs> Uh, charts. I'm just kidding. Okay, no. It, That's uh, so funny you said German. I watched a trailer in German yesterday. It's you? on YouTube. For Sister Act? For Sister Act 2. I told Rob, I, like, I, I was watching one thing to show, I wanted to show my wife, and then I just went, like, super deep on the stuff to the right, <laughs> and I watched a German trailer. Wow. It's, it's on YouTube. So Spanzi Sister Act. If you want to watch it, it's out there. Uh, okay. So, Ode to Joy, uh, originally written in German, uh, and it is called, in German, An die Freude. Uh, which is essentially to joy, like you would say, Lahayim to life. This is a, a an ode in, in form. Thank you uh, to joy. Uh, the original poem, written by Friedrich Schiller, written in 1785, it was edited and republished in 1808 after Schiller's death. Made most famous by its adaptation and use as the close of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the fourth and final movement of the hour-plus-long opus. And that's kind of the context in which we'll probably talk about the song Ode to Joy the most. Um, But it was a a poem originally and uh, was, you know, I, I think it was known, but it wasn't like widely you know what i mean like beethoven came along and put the shine on it and yeah that that made everybody go this is a classic you know a banger even just <laughs> all over the spotify charts <laughs> beethoven right, was right. with this it's thing blowing up it was just insane everybody was like you know everybody sending him texts and stuff like great job yeah. ludwig yeah so uh for those of you we get probably a hundred emails a week that say why don't you guys talk about classical music so finally, for this you, for you, for you people that have just been, I've had to block so many of you because you're so rude about this. Why don't you talk about classical music? Finally, here you go. Let's talk about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Game on. Uh, it was the first example of a major composer using voices as part of a symphonic work. So up to this point, it is we were not combining uh, in that way. You know, choral music and symphonic music. They were two separate things and never the twain shall meet until Beethoven was like, forget that. If I'm going to go deaf before I die, I'm going to do something nobody's done before. And uh, I'm going to combine white guy rap and hip hop and <laughs> soul music. That's right. I'm the sister act two of my generation. <laughs> <laughs> Beethoven. Playing the part of Frank K will be Ludwig von Beethoven. Oh my gosh. Beethoven is the sister act two of his generation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the funniest thing you'll hear today, I promise. Um, so Beethoven's Ninth was <laughs> ranked by the BBC as the second greatest symphonic work of all time behind Beethoven's own third symphony. Um, but will you find it on the Billboard All Time 600? <laughs> no. I mean, why not? No. It's not. <laughs> no, sir. Um, the symphony itself was in D minor, uh, primarily. Of which course, is the, the saddest of all keys. The saddest of all keys. But the fourth movement uh, leaps into parallel D major for the Ode to Joy. Um, and there's some really interesting stories about just the first performance of. Uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Beethoven was mostly, he was almost totally deaf by this point. Um, the, the so way, it's kind of the, the opposite of, real quick, to go backwards, just three seconds. It's kind of the opposite of she came in through the bathroom window. How so? Because she came in through the bathroom window, the verse is in D major, oh, and then the chorus oh, is in D minor. Okay, I thought you were talking about like somehow metaphorically. Oh, yeah, no, no, like, no, there's no metaphor in that. That's hilarious, it's just, okay. Just structure-wise. Yeah, sure, that's true, kind of the opposite, yes. Um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was 
she came in through the bathroom window of his of generation. His generation. <laughs> yeah, of his generation. Um, but yeah, at the, at the time of, of the premiere of the Ninth Symphony in Vienna, Austria, in 1824, Beethoven was almost completely deaf. He conducted the symphony as kind of a figurehead. Like, he was there, and he was conducting the, the, the symphony, but the real conducting was done by another guy, a guy named Michael Umlauf. Um, and um, because... It, it couldn't be guaranteed that Beethoven would hear well enough to be able to keep sur- everybody together. To, and and that, yeah. Direct. And that, and that he was even like a, the story goes that he, at the end, either of a movement or at the end of the symphony, depending on how the, the, the entire work itself, he was just still going, not aware that it was over. Um, and that the audience had started applauding, because it was over, but he was just still giving they, it the and, business. Yes. And the, the description of him like conducting the orchestra is that he was like just furiously gyrating, like not, not angrily. I, I just mean that he was like all over the place and yeah. so emotive and you know, whatever. Um, but that he just kept trucking on through the ending after it was done. And he had to be turned around by the lead soprano from Ode to Joy named Caroline Unger that she like kind of tugged on him and was like, it's done. Like yeah. this is over. And they're trying to like show you that they loved like, it because yeah, it, you, the audience immediately erupted. Uh-huh. And, um, and the audience at the time knew that he was deaf. Um, and so instead of just applauding, which they knew that he couldn't hear, they were like throwing their hats and oh, stuff in the cool. air so that he could like see visually, their, that's good. visually their, their, you know, their approval and that kind of stuff. But I just thought that was so funny that like, he was like, no, nah, I'm going to conduct it, mm-hmm. you know, but the, but basically it reads like the symphony was instructed to ignore him yeah, altogether. D- don't follow him. Don't look at Beethoven. If he's up there doing the, the girl from the chandelier video by Sia, <laughs> like just all over the place. Yes. Cause he is the girl from the chandelier yeah. video of his uh, generation. Uh, yes. Everybody knows this the famous, famously. Famous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I just thought that was such a funny thing. Uh, but it, everybody was like, don't look at, don't look at Beethoven, ignore him completely. Look at Michael Umlauf. He's the real conductor. So he was sort where of like, the, I wonder where he was positioned. Like I'm just trying to visualize that like right were they side by side was were one, they un- one like off the, to the yeah. side yeah it's like do you give beethoven a shorter podium or something i think or you like elevate a, him you right? ele- mm. yeah you just don't look make at him. you make him look like the star like the guy but yeah. really it's like this guy uh-huh. maybe so maybe you've got a guy like kind of down almost in the pit kind of where he, they put the person that does the sign, the sign language for like <laughs> kind of off to the side yeah 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 there you go um let's see now the the story of the Ninth Symphony, the legend of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, says that the uh, length of the CD when the CD was developed was put at seventy four minutes so that it could hold Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Really, is they, that true? That, That's a true fact. That is what I've my entire life I've heard that story. Okay, um, I didn't know that. That when they were trying to determine how long, how big should a CD be, they wanted it to be able to to fit in a jacket pocket. I think was the story, um, but they were trying to figure out exactly how big and how long should we make it, and so they ended up making it the size that they did because they wanted to fit seventy four minutes of music on it, and the, and the story went that it was because the one of the guys in charge of uh, and I can't remember it was, it was a joint venture between Sony and Phillips um, that one of the people involved was like it has to be Beethoven's ninth is the greatest work of all time. And it has to be able to fit on one CD. So that's now 
if you go on like Snopes, Snopes says that it can't really be determined whether or not that's true. So, but it is a, it's a long held story. Yeah. So it might be true. I like might it. be partially true, but you I've can never tell heard you, it till today, but I it'll, like it. it's, it's, it's widely held enough that it'll win you a trivia night question. Like yeah. you feel confident <laughs> yeah. at trivia night when they say the length of the CD was determined by, by this song, you can say Beethoven's ninth or by this, whatever, by this artistic work, um, that's, you could say Beethoven's ninth and you'll be correct. Yeah. The fourth movement melody that is owed to joy. Um, and that is the melody is pretty much what you're hearing here on sister act. It's, you know, you've probably heard the, like, you know, which they're pretty much sticking with. It's not um, quite as tight. It's tight its own way, but yeah. it's a little more movement. And rhythmically, yeah, rhythmically you've got its, you know, uh, but it's it's quarter notes in uh -huh. Beethoven's. It's, you know, it's not it's not uh, syncopated or anything uh -huh. like that. Um, but the the melody was adopted by the Council of Europe in 1972 as the Anthem of Europe. And later also by the European Union, uh, which is obviously still going, still going strong. So you had the original poem that was written by uh, Friedrich Schiller in 1785. Then you have the Beethoven adaptation, the presentation where, and Beethoven uh, rewrote some of the lyrics um, for his version. And then you have the 1907 hymn which a lot of people know as Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, or Hymn of Joy. Um, 1907, Henry Van Dyke, and it was intended to be sung to Beethoven's melody, but it even further um, changed those uh, those lyrics up a little bit. And that's where you get the... Um, you get some of... Like, the first verse is the same, but then it starts to change. The I think the rest of it probably is when you get the mortals join the mighty chorus, which the morning stars began... Father love is reigning over us. Brother love binds man to man. All that stuff, none of that stuff is in the original version. Um, all that works with joy surround the earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Those aren't, those are from the hymn version. Um, and then, okay, this it's time. I, I, so I did something silly and I knew it was going to be silly, um, but it came out even sillier than I hoped. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, I wanted to read a little bit of the of the English translation of the original German poem. Okay. Okay. And I was like, it's gonna be boring or stupid for me to just read this. Like it's gonna be it's gonna get old fast, right? Because it's I mean, it's a it's not a lengthy poem, but it's enough where you're gonna want me to stop reading it at some point. Sure. Right. So I was like, I wish I had somebody who could read this with like some gravitas, right? That would like draw you in. It would make it worthwhile to listen to this whole thing. I would love to present the whole poem. <clears throat> and I was like, who should read this poem, right? And I was like, you know who'd be great? Somebody with, with somebody British, somebody with a great British voice, Ian McKellen should, okay. should read this, yeah. okay? So I called him up. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, so, so here's what I did. I, I trained an AI voice to learn Ian McKellen's voice. Okay. Okay. And then I thought, okay, this will be perfect. I'll train an AI voice to, to sound like Ian McKellen. I uploaded 30 minutes of, I went, I went way too hard on this <laughs> for a segment that's going to be 30 seconds long yep. in real time. Um, but I, so I uploaded 30 minutes of just Ian McKellen reading. Yeah. Okay. Um, and train an, a an AI voice and then gave it the words to the original Ode to Joy. Okay. 
And so this I'm is like, what the future's doing to us. This, folks. Is, yeah, this yeah. is happening because honestly, after having done this, it's going to be so easy for we could just continue this podcast forever. Get AI to write the R- Rob's interviews as Shaggy. We Absol- could have he could Absolutely. be Shaggy with Listen, no trouble. This is how this is how easy this is going to become. Okay, we can train AI voices to sound like us. Uh-huh. Okay, we can train uh, like ChatGPT to do the research for us. Tell us the backstory of the song. Blah 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 blah. Tell us about the person that wrote it. <laughs> Tell us about its context in make American up a history. Game. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yes. Make up trivia. Um, and then script it and then have it read out in our voices. So I'm going to make at least one fake episode of the show <laughs> and see how long we can fool people. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he, here's where it got really funny. Okay. The, the AI voice that I trained uh, using the software called Descript, uh, which we use for certain things um, uh, like um, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it, we have like the middle tier of, of their software. Mm-hmm. And unless you have the top tier, your AI voice has a limited vocabulary. Okay. Okay. And so any words that it doesn't have in its vocabulary, <laughs> it fills in with the words jibber and jabber. <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't just not say them. It, it's a placeholder. Yes. It just throws it in. So with all that backstory... Here is Ian McKellen. We're not going to do the whole thing, but here is Sir Ian McKellen <laughs> reading "Ode to Joy," <laughs> filling in the words that the AI voice doesn't know with jibber and jabber. Enjoy. The friends, no more of these sounds. Let us sing more cheerful jibber, more songs <laughs> full of joy, 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 joy. Bright spark of divinity, daughter of Elysium, fire inspired. We tread within thy jabber. Magic power who unites all that custom has jibber. All men become brothers under the sway of jabber gentle wings. Whoever has created an abiding friendship or has jabber true and loving wife, all who can call at least one soul theirs join our song of praise. But those who cannot must creep tearfully away from our circle. All jibber drink of joy at nature's breast. Just and unjust alike taste of her papaya. She gave us jabber and the fruit of the vine, a tried friend to the end. Even the jibber can feel contentment. <laughs> okay, so here's so there's like a, apparently there's like a thousand word vocabulary that this <laughs> yeah. AI knows. It knew papaya, but it didn't. That word in the text is gift. It substituted gift for papaya. It substituted gift for papaya. It doesn't know the word worm. It doesn't know the word. Thy, I think King James sort of vernacular is outside of its vocabulary. Yeah. It does know Elysium, daughter of Elysium, uh, which is weird. Maybe it seems that, like if you know a thousand words, why would you waste one of them on Elysium? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so I so anyway, I just thought that was hilarious. I was like, That's great. This is way better than I intended. That's awesome. Um, that's good job. Thank anyway, you, Ian, for go. stopping by. Thank you, Sir Ian McKelly. Ladies and gentlemen, Magneto himself. That's awesome. Gandalf the Gray. That's awesome. Stepping in to uh to lend <laughs> lend a hand here. Um, that is that is a thing that I'm going to have to stop myself from doing more often. Yeah. You know, that just not just Ian McKellen. That's it. That is a time suck. Uh, but just the idea of like, who would be funny to read these lyrics? Yeah. That, that is a dark, deep hole that has no end. (laughs) All right. Let's, we should talk about the, the, the sister act version uses a lot of reharmonization, right? Mm-hmm. So the, um, I might even should have a guitar to like try. Do you have an acoustic yeah, guitar handy? I'll go grab one. Can I use this one? I'll use this one. Okay. I'll grab one. 
So, okay, I've, I've, I've grabbed a guitar, thanks to JP here. Um, and we're talking about, we've maybe touched on sort of the general idea of reharmonization before, that it's the idea of taking a melody that is established to a song and basically putting it over new chords, right? Without yeah. changing the original melody mm -hmm. uh, for, for the most part. So it's done in this context in that the original Ode to Joy melody does a lot of just one and five, right? So we're in the key of D. So, so we've got right. It does mm -hmm. that one chord change. Right. Okay. That's D and A for those of you that are right. playing along. Not a lot of movement going on there. So what we've done here, uh, and our guy Merv Warren has done some reharmonization here, where we're doing a lot of more contemporary gospel and jazz movement underneath it. And I'm gonna not gonna play it exactly the way that he does. He's got some chords in there that are that are beyond even my you know my capacity. And Rob's on a guitar versus piano, which yeah, is a little easier. It's a to... little yeah. Unless you're like a smooth jazz guy, you know, which I'm not. So, but you get. One of the first things that you notice, literally, the, the, the very first movement, once you get away from that original D chord, right? And I don't, I don't know if they're actually in D or close not, enough. I can't remember, but it's close. But if in that context, instead of staying on that one, right, you get joyful, joyful, Lord. Well, okay, so, it's, so you're going like a one, five minor, joy, and then a one, seven, and then a four. Okay, and then I think to a flat 7-7, seven, seven, Lord, we adore thee. Ugh. Okay, so right away you're like, okay, this is much more complex. Sure. You know, chord-wise than we're talking about. So you've got all these moves around there, but the melody stays the same, and these chords just accent it a different way, give it a different flavor. Um, and so th there are some very, if you just look up like... Uh, just reharmonizations on Instagram, that kind of stuff, YouTube, uh, TikTok, whatever. There are some great ones and crazy ones where people will really change chords with every single note of a of a thing and really make some out there voicings to to reharmonize something to an insane degree. And some of it is too much. At a certain point, in my opinion, reharmonization becomes not musically pleasing mm -hmm. anymore, right? Once you you can kind of lose the plot if you yeah. reharmonize too much. Um, but th this is sort of a you know, um, and sort of an intermediate level of where it's, it's still very pleasant. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not insane. Um, and you've got, you know, you get into the, let's see, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, it does the same move of giver of might even do, you could go, go a, a flat five, go immortal gladness. Uh, what is it? Uh, 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 um, there's a great there's a great diminished move in there somewhere like a um, a, a seven diminished three seven six minor kind of move. Um, anyway, so great reharmonization. Yes, good job, Merv. Good job, Merv. Um, and that's that's a sort of a deep you know hole you can get great. into on the on the reharmonization. But that'll sort of be our our theory for this one. That's great. Um, okay. That, I think that's all I have on Joyful Joyful itself. Do you have okay. anything you want to add before we move on? Um, let's, uh, no, no, we're no, good. Okay. I'll, I'll give a, are we going to talk about the movie anywhere? Yeah, I've got some stuff on okay. the movie at let's the keep, end. I'll bring around. Keep it moving then. Okay. All right. So the, the uh, next uh, pop song that we will encounter during this finale is 
after our rap section here. Okay, so now we've got you down with G-O-D, or who's down with G-O-D? Yeah, you know me. Yeah, you know me. You down with G-O-D. Okay, so that's where we're, now we're getting into uh, a, a uh, usage of OPP by Naughty by Nature. Give it up for Naughty by Nature. Nature. Let's play a little bit. Here's some of that original. Here's OPP by Naughty by Nature. That piano sample is just flat enough where it can bother you, but they can still get away with it. I'll probably get to the chorus. Long verse. It's awesome. It's just a boyfriend's out of house. It's so PP some other people's, but you get it. There's no room for relationships, it's just room to hit it. How many brothers out there know this what I'm getting at? Who think it's wrong because I was splitting it, co-hitting that? Well, if you do that's OPP and you're not down with it. But if you don't, here's your membership. You're down with LPP, yeah, you know me. You're down with LPP, yeah, you know me. You're down with LPP, yeah, you know me. Who's down with LPP? All right, so uh, if you didn't catch my man Tretch in there in the verse, <laughs> uh, OPP is a is a is a complicated acronym. Uh, we won't really get into uh, because this is a family friendly show. Um, but if you're if you're of a certain age, you're familiar with the song and you 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 understand. Their other hit, Hip Hop Hooray, Hip Hop Hooray, was uh, I was at youth camp. And that was our cabins thing everywhere we really? went. We did the hip hop. Naughty hooray. by Nature's hip hop hooray. Christian youth camp, Signal Mountain Youth Camp. Yeah, okay. Y'all remember. Chris Towns, you remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's OPP by Naughty by Nature. Uh, that is Tretch, Vinny, and DJ KG from the 1991 album Naughty by Nature. That was their breakout song, OPP, was their, was their big breakout. It went to number one on the U.S. Hot Rap Songs chart, the U.S. Dance Singles chart. Number five on the U.S. Uh, hot R&B slash hip hop, and number six on the Hot 100 in 1991. Man, like that was the beginning of mainstream hip hop recognition. Yeah, I'm trying to think what might have come before that as far as a mainstream. I think probably Hammer, uh, Hammer, right? Yeah. MC Hammer, yeah. you can't touch this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of hip hop that like burst onto. Huge, everybody knew it mainstream, you know, before yeah. before you can't touch this. Um, when did Jump come out? 
After. After. Yeah, Jump is after Everything this. Then, um, but similarly to Jump, you've got a Jackson 5 sample oh, yeah. heavily, heavily yeah. throughout. You've got uh, ABC by the Jackson mm-hmm. 5 um, sampled sampled throughout there. Um, and, the, and that piano sample, that that octave thing that's just flat. I mean, it's like, <laughs> mm. and it's, but, you know, we're back in the day where like sampling is less of a, um, it's not less of an art form, but it's, uh, it's less, uh, there's less you could do with the sampling yeah. than you can do now. Now you could fix that, have everything perfectly in pitch, but there's, you'll find a lot of these older hip hop songs that are using multiple samples. You'll find maybe one that's like just out of key or some that's just in the wrong key and they just <laughs> go with it. They're yeah. like, we like the way this feels, you know, whatever. Uh, the drum sample is also very famous, and it was originally from the song Synthetic Substitution by Melvin Bliss. Uh, drums performed by a guy that we've mentioned before and kind of talked to, uh, kind of talked about at length at one point, a guy named Bernard Purdy. Um, Purdy Shuffle. The Purdy Shuffle, that's right. And he and Bernard Purdy, like, I, he's played on tons of stuff. He played like Steely Dan and all this kind of stuff. But one of his big claims that he keeps, he keeps insisting that he played on a lot of Beatles records. That he that it was not Ringo that you're hearing on on many of the Beatles records, but it is in fact Bernard Purdy, um, and I guess he's going to hold on to that until he dies. <laughs> I, I so I I don't I or I, until Ringo dies, then he's or, just like gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I you know who knows, but uh, I tend to I tend to not buy it. But also, it's a weird thing to just hold on to yep. when you don't need to. Like mm-hmm. he's you're a legend on your own. You don't have to be a Beatle. Yeah. So there's. Uh, Anyway, it's a it's a fun thing to research. You can find out, and he's not shy about talking about it. Purdy's yeah. not so, and I think it's in his. I think he's got a book, and I think it's in there too. But anyway, here's the beginning of that drum sample. I mean, you've heard that, yeah, in a million different things, but and that is primarily. I think it's just the drum sample. They took that like one bar, that kind of heavy footed. Reverbed all the high heavens. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't know if it's reverb or just like open room air. Noise? Yeah, I think it's just room. I it could be a little reverb on the reverb, snare. Yeah. could be a little reverb on the snare. Um, but anyway, that's uh, Synthetic Substitution by Melvin Bliss. That song itself is pretty weird. I don't really enjoy it. All the pocket from the beginning just disappeared <laughs> right there. It's slower than I've. Yeah. It loses me yeah. for sure. It's not like, and that was a B side. Like I don't think yeah. you know whatever. But it becomes this famous famous drum sample. Um, I did forget to mention that uh, OPP also did well in Canada and the UK. Top five in Canada, uh, top 15 in UK. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Never having listened to OPP in headphones before, I had never noticed uh, that there is a lot of moaning going on yeah, in, in the that background. song. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Uh-huh. Like it's like every all through the verse, every, every bar mm-hmm. all through the verse. Yeah. It's like, I'm it made me uncomfortable. Let's see. Um, OPP was originally credited to, credited to Naughty by Nature and Barry Gordy, um, but later the other three writers of ABC was added. This is on the cusp of it's still kind of the Wild West as far as sampling, and, mm-hmm. it, and it was before the landmark uh, Bismarck Key uh, uh, 
sampling of um, Alone Again naturally. naturally Gilbert yeah, O'Sullivan. Gilbert O'Sullivan. And that... On Just a Friend? That's right. Um, no, just Alone Again. I mean, yeah, Alone Again naturally, yeah. yeah. The, the same guy that does Just a Friend. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Rest in peace, Bismarcky. Um, but that that went to court and was the was the the court decision that made it where you had to clear samples before you used them. Mm-hmm. Up to this point, it was just like, eh, I'm going to put this on a record and, you know, yeah. use your copyrighted material. According to Song Facts, OPP was inspired by a drug dealer who used to encroach on other people, other, other dealers territory saying he was down with OPM, other people's money. Um, and that's all I really have about that. Do you have anything on Naughty by Nature you want to talk about? Keep it going. Okay. All right. What have you done for me lately by Janet Jackson is the next thing we're going to hear. Let's go back to our original source material, back to Sister Act 2. They're going to say, what have you done for him lately? That's right. They're going to change this up a little bit. It's so funny. Like literally, it it's literally like they just threw that in. Listen they're to just, it. Yeah, it doesn't. They're just like we want to sample Janet. Yes, we need we need some Janet cred here. Yeah. So what can we take? It Control doesn't work. <laughs> right. Rhythm Nation's a little too punchy. Yeah. Black Cat, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's like literally just is a oh by the way like yeah. that, by the way we know Janet. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Jam is in the house. Yeah. So that's, uh, of course, uh, taken from What Have You Done For Me Lately by Janet Jackson. Let's catch a little bit of that original. You want to talk about a song going from major to minor? This is going directly, like line to line. We're going major to minor. What have you done for me lately? Ooh, yeah. Like one line to the next, we're going all the way minor to all the way major. Crazy. Uh, that's uh, what have you done for me lately? From the '96, uh, excuse me, from the '86 album Control, written by Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, her uh, famed production duo. It went to number one on the U.S. Dance Singles Sales Chart. Number also number one on the Hot Black Singles Chart. Uh, my favorite dating app. Also um, <laughs> number two on the Dance Club Songs Chart. Number thirty-eight on the U.S. Adult Contemporary Chart, and number four on the Hot One Hundred. Number three in the UK, number six in Canada and Australia. Just a, a, a massive hit for Janet. Um, and there is a little bit of controversy on that song that I was not aware of, um, but that Prince long held that that song somehow was stolen from him. He, oh. would, he would play um, his song, Controversy, in, in concert. He would start... Um, I don't know if it's that they were just jacking his style or there was something about the song that he felt like was directly taken, but he would perform part of what have you done for me lately in concert and then stop and say, who wrote this? And then play his song controversy, which is this. 
Okay, first of all, this song is dope and it sounds amazing. <laughs> Bass is awesome. There's a synth part in here that sounds incredible. So right off the bat, I don't hear, I don't hear it. I'll just say this, but Prince for the longest, he would literally, I just don't hear, I don't hear anything about what have you done for me lately in this. I don't, in musically, production wise, lyrically, melodically, I don't hear it. But Prince up until like the last sort of era of his live performance would play Part of what have you done for me lately? Stop and be like, who wrote this? And then play controversy. I don't. I I don't get it. Maybe y'all can enlighten me. But Prince like was pretty intent on making some deal out of that song. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he was trying to say, but anyway, he did. Um, what have you done for me lately? Was nominated for a 1987 Grammy for best R and B song, uh, but it lost to Anita Baker and her classic song "Sweet Love." which is uh, a melody that is, that song is like transcendent, right? It's like, I, and I love trying to do that. A little, a little, uh, Baker voice, uh, a little, it's that, it's the way she sings that top note, dude. Uh-huh. And the top of her register, the sweet love. Oh, there it is. Anita, thank dude. you for stopping by. Come on, Anita Baker. Thank <laughs> you for stopping by. Rest in peace. She's, she died, right? She died. She did. Right? right, she retired for sure, but I think she she died like within the last. Mickey I want to say like six months. Mickey Dolans. Let's see. Right, let's not Mickey Dolans Anita Baker if she's still alive. Hang on. Pretty sure. I feel like we and Dave talked Anita about Baker. That. Oh gosh. He is. He's alive. Oh yeah. Oh no. Uh, okay, yeah, she's I'm still sorry. Going strong. I'm sorry. Okay. She's retired. She just is not dead. Okay. Sorry, Anita Baker. Uh, I know you're a big fan of the show. Um, Okay. So from Wikipedia, I thought this was an interesting insight into uh, what have you done for me lately? And I'm I'm just going to take this straight from Wikipedia because it tells a story and use a couple good quotes. The lyrics were uh, rewritten to convey Jack. Let me start that again. The lyrics were rewritten to convey Janet Jackson's feelings about her recent annulment from James DeBarge, presumably of El DeBarge, but I don't know if that's true. It was the last song to be. Tell me if this sounds familiar. It was the last song to be recorded for Control and was ultimately chosen as the lead single for the album, as Jam and Lewis felt it best represented Jackson's outlook on life. Quote. I think it was very representative of the sparseness and the funkiness that the rest of the album had and the attitude Janet had about being in control, being matured to the point where she had definite opinions about what she wanted to say. Unquote. The song was inspired by one of her experiences in Minneapolis when a group of men made sexual advances toward her outside the hotel she resided at during the recording of Control. She recalled, quote, they were emotionally abusive, sexually threatening. Instead of running to Jimmy or Terry for protection, I took a stand. I backed them down. That's how songs like Nasty and What Have You Done For Me Lately were born out of a sense of self-defense, unquote. So there you go. There's the backstory for what have you done yeah, for I me lately? I, I didn't know that nasty and that I didn't know that whole story. Nasty boys. Oh, and I saw Janet in concert. Yes, you did. did. Uh, just what a couple weeks ago, couple as weeks we ago. record this. Yeah. But, uh, this will be released later. But as we record, yeah, uh, on May 26th, Lauren Hill's birthday. 
That's Happy right. Birthday, As, Lauren Hill. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw Janet. She did 42 songs. That's <laughs> insane. At three minutes a piece, yeah. Yeah. let's say. I can't even do that math. But did, but she didn't do concert. every bit of every song, but it was a sure. long show. Uh, but didn't do Runaway and didn't do uh, Black Cat. Just Man. one little sampling of Black Cat. That's crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. So is that the longest show you've been to? What's the longest concert <laughs> you've ever been to? Man, I, that's a great question. Because Ludacris, full-blown opener. L- Ludacris, full-blown opener. Uh, he did about an hour, a little okay. over an hour. Yeah. Um, it was a long show. That's a good question. I'll have to think. I'll have to come back on the longest show I've ever been okay. to. All right. The longest I've ever seen one performer perform was Paul McCartney. I saw okay. him do over three hours himself. Holy smokes. No breaks, just running like, and he was older at he's the time. He's old, yeah. And this was even, this was before I was married, so it was 12, 13 years ago, something okay. like that. And he just stayed out there the three whole time. Hours. And he still does all his stuff in the original keys. Awesome. Like, he doesn't change yep, it. Like, nope. there's the story of Billy Joel being like, Yo, he they changes were, everything. Yeah, they were, and they and they were going to do something together, and he's like, "Okay, yeah, Paul, what what key do you do this in now?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Um, what key do you do this in? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know what keys it on in the recording, right. sucker, sucker, fool. That's right. Um, okay, so you know, Ludacris, another uh, rapper turned actor, right? He's, yeah. He's in the Fast and Furious movies. He's in some other stuff. Um, who is the Who is the greatest? rapper actor of all time we've got Ooh. lauren hill in she'll Sister have to be in the equation right she's got to be in there who is the who is the greatest rapper actor of all time tupac is in the conversation uh, i'm gonna go ninja rap vanilla ice <laughs> go ninja go ninja go wow yeah. yo it's the green machine the way he the way he reacted when like super shredder busted oh, onto the man. scene I, that was really that was really deep gonna rock stuff. the town without being seen they say about tupac Oh yeah, that's the answer. They said that he would have been like oh, that's the one answer. of the greats. No, that that is the answer. I mean, above the rim is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and he's oh, I love that. Yeah, that's that, that's probably right. Him and I or think, Luda, I guess Luda's done more because of Fast and Furious. Luda's but, done more, but uh, yeah, Tupac's the right answer. I think so. Probably the best, the best rapper slash actor. Off the top of my head, that's the best I can right, think of. Right, yeah, top of. of my head, yeah, yeah. They And I think we talked about long ago, I can't even remember what episode this was, but that Tupac actually auditioned for the role of uh, Mace Windu in Star Wars. Um, that eventually went to and Samuel Jackson. And Bubba Gump in uh, Forrest Gump. I mean, That's right. You, uh, wow. Yeah, he was going to, that wouldn't have worked. You don't think? I don't know, Tupac can do anything. Too, he'd Maybe. have been too cool to, yeah. be, to be Bubba. Um, man, or yeah, Bubba, Bubba Blue. Um, anyway, I don't know. Just random question. That'd be an interesting conversation to, to really dig into rapper actors. Um, okay. All right. Let's, uh, you want to do some meet the band? What, yeah. are, are we meeting Beethoven's band? Let's meet, uh, the, we'll see. We'll get, no. Ver, <laughs> Werner von right. Schnitzman. That guy. Yeah. On lead <laughs> flute. <laughs> lead flute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's probably not flute. Hey, let's meet the band. It's time to meet the band. Hey mama, let's meet the band. Let's. Uh, from Sister Act 2 okay. on Joyful Joyful. Uh, Ryan Toby as Wesley Glenn Amal James. Dude can sing. He kills Oh Happy Day in the movie. Uh, he went on to be... Rob, start looking up Oh Happy Day while I talk for a okay. minute. He All went right. on to be in a group called City High, and he wrote a ditty you may have heard of 
called Miami for Will Smith from the Big Willie Shut style. Shut up. Yeah, buddy. Um, he uh, also has written stuff for Darius Rucker, Brian McKnight, and he wrote three songs on the Usher Confessions to, album. I have a surprise. Dang. So, yeah, that guy. Um, Go for he, it, dude. He, uh, he sings the fill us with the light of day, Lord, hook at the end. Right, right. But his awesome. sort of shining moment is, oh, happy day. Yeah, let's hear a little of it. Where he's very uncomfortable at the beginning, as is everyone. They're like, they have that posture that says, I'm not feeling this. I am defeated. I don't want to do this performance. Ew. Even the crowd, even the choral parts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but he brings it. He's like looking down at the floor. He gets more comfortable. He gets there. Let's hear a little bit. Coming out of a shell here. Take it up. So you get, everybody's loving it. Oh man, everybody's loving it. But the 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 uh, the father, no, he's not the father. He's like the regional priest, whatever, like the cardinal or the yeah. bishop or whatever. He's feeling it. The priest that looks like Billy Bob Thornton's <laughs> feeling it. The the chef is snapping his priest, fingers. Priest sling blade. Yeah. <laughs> father sling blade. Father sling blade. Man, I love me Jesus. Man. <laughs> um, <laughs> everybody's everybody's getting into it. I feel like you have two reactions to that. You have Whoopi's reaction. She like turns and like just gives a look, like like a little bit of a stank face. Uh-huh. That's I feel like that's the that's the musician reaction to whistle yeah. tones. When somebody breaks out a whistle tone, you get that. Oh, yeah. you, it's a look, uh-huh. right? And then the like general crowd response is just applause, right? Like they know that was something, uh-huh. right? That that's like I don't exactly. Musically understand what just happened there, but like it's, I'm feeling what you did. Yeah, that guy's awesome. That guy can wail. I like him. Um, Devin Kamen as Frank K. Frank K. The white guy rapper. Uh, he went on to be in My So Called Life and Alpha Dog, uh, both of which are pretty iconic, but I've never seen an episode of My So Called Life or the movie Alpha Dog. My So Called Life is something that I didn't, I would not say that I watched it, uh-huh. but I've seen it, like, I'm, Feel like I saw enough to feel like I have a grasp on it, you know. Yeah. And I know it had um, what's his name? Jared from Leto. Jared Leto, who's who's uh, had a band in the thing, and he's a real musician. I didn't know it at the time. I assumed it was all fake, but his I remember his band doing a Ramones cover on that show. And then Claire Danes. What else was Claire Danes in? I don't know. Like I know that's her. the thing that I know her most from. Yeah, I, I, was she but, in the Romeo and Juliet remake? Yeah, in the I 90s? think you're right. I think that's right. That's good with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, good right? call. Okay. That's a pretty good soundtrack, too. It was. It was um, yeah. Ron Johnson, he's the other rapper. Uh, his story is not so glabrous, glab, glabrous, glabrous. Glamorous. He was accused of rape in 94 for raping a 16-year-old girl extra on the set of Sister Act 2. Can you read that? Can you say that one more time? But say sexual assault instead of rape. Thank you. He I was think a, it's a little... I just don't want to freak you out. He was accused work. of sexual assault in 94 for uh, an encounter with a 16-year-old extra on the set of Sister Act 2. Yeah, it's not great. Um, he was later acquitted. Um, not much positive on him other than that. And that he... Well, not that that's positive, but not right. much positive at all. Other than that, and he's uh, he's down with G-O-D in the rap of this song. <laughs> Apparently. So, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So moving on to a little more up uh, uplifting. Lauren Hill... 
For all things about Lauren Hill, take it back to 2018, our second season, episode 16, and uh, we talk about Killing Me Softly with the Fugees and uh, Roberta Flack, but please be gracious if you decide to go back that far as we were still getting our sea legs under No, come, we were already great by then. Oh, dude, we were, cruising, we were cruising in season we, two. Dude, bro, we were already the greatest music podcast <laughs> ever, on the planet ever, by that point. Ever invented. Um, I think her two best parts on this song, other than the intro, are the We Need You hook okay. and the Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis at the end. Phyllis. Well, Phyllis. Good old Phyllis. Good yeah. old Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I threw... One other thing, too. Um, she has six kids, five of which are with... Did you know she married Bob Marley's son? No. I, I did not know that either. So she had five with him. Now, if you had told me that she married Bob Marley's drummer's son, I, that would be much oh, more family believable. family man. Because bass, bass player. The yeah, odds man. of... of so, oh, his bass player. Yeah, okay. family man. Yeah, family man. Because the, the odds of marrying one of family man's sons is much, it's, much it's greater. It's out there. It's yeah. Right. I mean, that's pretty... pretty Like, if you if you were to set up a bet in Vegas or like on a, yeah. on a betting app, <laughs> what are the odds that... Anyone on earth is related like, to family man. Yeah. Six degrees of family man. Yeah, it's right? gonna happen. It's, yeah. For that for that joke, go back to season one. <laughs> season one, episode probably I shot three. The sheriff. Yeah. It's early. It's top I think it's number five or six, something like that. Um Lauren Hill. So I, I threw this at Rob earlier um before. Do you think she's more of a rapper that can sing mm-hmm. or a singer who can rap? I think I w- w- if you say Lauren Hill, I think singer. Mm-hmm. I but maybe it's because I'm not as much of a hip hop head. But also, I'm not like I don't have any Lauren Hill albums. Yeah, I don't. I, ha- you don't have re- miseducation. Yeah, I don't have no. I, I don't. So, but I think of when you say Lauren Hill, I think that thing. Yeah, that's okay. my first thought. Okay, so Do, which is a great song, which is from yeah. the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, her yeah. first single. And so I think I think f- first of her as a singer, yeah. and that. I kind of go, oh, but she did rap. Yeah. You know what See, I mean? See, I'm the same way, but we're kind of the minority when you look at that as every every class when they rate her or listing, you know, you love lists and yeah. rankings. She's listed as a rapper, the first uh, female rapper on Time Magazine, um, eight Grammys, the most by any female rapper. Um, uh, Billboard ranked her the t- in the top 10 best female rappers ever. So all her categories. Do you have that list? I don't. I should have mm. put that down. Um, but she's in there. That's uh, We'll look at that one afterwards. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, female rappers. You've got like Queen Latifah. Yeah. Salt and Peppa. Salt, salt and Peppa. Don't yeah. forget. You got don't du- forget. Double the power there. Never forget. Yeah. Uh, like Lil' Kim? Yeah. Uh, Maybe. Nicki Minaj? Okay. I think probably Nicki's going to be like the most recent queen of rap. Yeah, probably so. Uh, I I don't know. My my female rap game is is off. I've started listening to rap. I mean, I've stopped listening to rap like a long time ago for the most part. So I don't know. Because I was like like Lady of Rage. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lady of Rage. Afro Puffs, you know? I rock's rough and stuff with my Afro oh, Puffs. okay. Rage. Yeah. Rock yeah. on with your band, Sam. Okay, that's good. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and one other band member that I, or one part of the Meet the Band section I want to touch on is uh, an actress slash vocalist by the name of Tanya Trotter. Um, she's mm. in a group now called Warren Treaty, who me and Rob yes. have seen. Uh, we saw them perform with Dave Barnes not too long ago, and I've seen him a couple times. I saw him at a, a national soccer game not too long ago. She does the His Eyes on the Sparrow with uh, Lauren Hill as Rita. Uh, Tanya actually plays her own name, Tanya, in this movie. She was Tanya Blunt at the time. Um, but she uh, had a, a song called Through the Rain 
from an album called Natural Thing that was number 26 on the the charts at the time, so pretty big. And she got signed by Big Boy. Her and, and Puff Daddy had their their run together, and uh, she got to be is on that, that. Big Boy or Bad Boy? Bad Boy. Big Boy is sorry. Okay, Big Boy is from Outcast. Let me look that. No, let me look that up. Okay. Pa- pause on that. Let me verify myself. Sean Combs, Bad Boy. Okay, I was right. Okay, I just bad said Big Boy. boy. Okay. Yeah, it was Bad Boy. Yeah, thank you for helping me on that. Um, No problem. That's what I'm here for. That's right. That's what a good co-host is here for. That's right. That's right. Verification. Uh, Play a little of just a small sampling, maybe five to ten seconds of her doing her part on His Eyes on the Sparrow. A low note. Yeah. Anyway, she freaking <laughs> kills it. And then Rita comes in and kills it. Rita as Lauren Hill. Right. She actually was a big influence for Jennifer Hudson. I saw an awesome interview with her the other day. And Jennifer Hudson was like, I wanted to be you. Like, I wanted to be that character. That's crazy. And Jennifer Hudson went on to be pretty good at that music game. Yeah. So she's done some yeah, things. Right. She's done some things. And it's awesome that she has come around to be kind of a big deal again with the War and Treaty. Yeah. Like, they're, like this was 30 years ago. Sister yeah. Act 2, 30 years 93. ago. 93. And so, we're in 2023. Yeah. So like, you know, to be like 30 years later getting some recognition, yeah. you know, um, in, in, in a, in a different vein, yeah, like, in a different vein and yeah. in a larger way. Like, yeah. a, you know what I mean? She probably was not getting stopped on the street for her part in sister act two. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Necessarily. Um, maybe by a certain like subsect, the sister act movies, I feel like are sister act two definitely is like cult classics. Absolutely. You like I mean? one charted better. One gets all the, flowers yeah. for being the best yeah but i like two better do you? I, I do i i uh, i like it maybe it's just because i like the music better i don't know sister act two and we might as well dig into the movie a little bit uh is i think of college i think of sister act two because we would watch it on like bus trips with college choir um right but I've i seen, forgot about that i've seen sister act one like a whole bunch of times. Really? Like I owned it on VHS and I used to just, you know, I would watch it a lot. So Sister Act 1 is going to be my favorite of of the just two. Just because of the familiarity. And yeah, and I just feel like the 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 plot's a little better. The yeah, it's like more the of a original. real plot than like I'm I'm just never so much about the plots of like we got we're going to win this competition. It's just not my th- it's thing, not thing for whatever. I just go, oh, "Okay, whatever." Dolores as a uh, Sister Mary Clarence. The Sister Mary Clarence, yeah. Vegas night singer turns right. into hiding. That's right. I didn't know this, but Sister Act Two. Now, okay. I don't think this applies to Sister Act One, but Sister Act Two is loosely based on the life of a woman named Iris Stevenson. Okay. Um, Iris Stevenson, who was a choir instructor at Crenshaw High School. Oh, okay. And so apparently there are some some elements, at least of the story, that were kind of taken from That's her. That's cool. I didn't know real that. Life, yeah, real life story. Um, let's see. From Wikipedia, it starred Lauren Hill in her breakout role, as where as as well as Cheryl Lee Ralph, who is now she just won uh, what an Emmy or something for her role in Abbott Elementary. Yeah, uh, she she plays Lauren Hill's mom mm-hmm. in this as like younger mom. Uh, Alana Eubank and Jennifer Love Hewitt, who I forgot was I in forgot Sister Act Two. Gospel singer Erica Campbell of the duo Mary Mary. R&B singer Ryan Toby of the group City High and the Warren Treaty singer Tanya Trotter also made appearances as members of the film's choir. I, I forgot Jennifer Love you was in that movie. <laughs> and I didn't know that Erica Campbell was in it. Yeah. Like, that's crazy to me. The movie itself had a budget of $38 million and it grossed $124.6 million. So it was a hit. I mean, it made, what, three... 
close to yeah three plus times its money yeah. you know back. So I mean, I think by any standard, that's a hit. Like one hundred and twenty four million dollars for a sequel. That feels pretty yeah, solid to me. That's good. Uh, it has a whopping 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, come however, on. An average rating of 3.6 out of 10. Critically, it sucks. Uh, <laughs> Who's but, the other? There's the other nun that went on to be in uh, Hocus Pocus. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember uh, her name. Uh, oh, come on. I can remember uh, Kathy Najimy. Yeah. Kathy you're Najimy right. Good name. job. Uh, and she was the voice of uh, Peggy Hill on uh, King of the Hill. I didn't know that. Yes. I get it now, though. Oh, yes. I see that. Good call. Uh, uh, so here's the funny thing, though. Critics hated it, but it has on Cinema Score, which is a fan fan rating thing only, it has an average A minus grade. Okay. So, like, it's, it's a thing that, like, nostalgically or like whatever people love. Like we said, it's a cult a classic, cult classic fan favorite, but I'm and, glad, I'm glad Rob referenced the cinema because I've wanted to use the, I heard this term today that I've never heard, which makes sense. Uh, Rob uh, also hosts a, a podcast called cinema snack bar. That's true. Where he talks about movies yeah. uh, on the regular and gets to talk about the foods from them. I consider Rob a cinephile, oh, which is a, a compliment, but if, to me, that sounds kind of like something I don't want to be called. <laughs> a, I don't. Maybe it's because the Pee Wee Herman thing or something. Uh, but like, I hear cinephile, yeah, and it just sounds. Well, that's what. So the, the, it's the file part yeah. that is the. It, it, but it just means that you're like very, very, very into yeah, something, right? Something. So like, if you're an audiophile, yeah, it means that you're very sort of. Um, it's like you're you're like a high level um, auteur of something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so a cinephile is someone who. By the, I'm not a cinema a, cinema, a cinephile. Like that's somebody who like really, really, really knows. You know what I mean? I like like you know I don't consider much. myself a cinephile at all. Um, but you know, an audiophile is somebody who goes, um, yeah, but the the you know the the quality of the a cinephile is somebody that that tells you they can hear the difference in quality between a high quality stream and a CD. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an audiophile. Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I can't. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think those people are pretentious, <laughs> but like, um, you know, people who are like, people who are like, you know, uh, a plugin can never emulate a, a guitar amp, uh, or, uh, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Those are the audiophile opinions that you get. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm like, eh, whatever. It's cool. You know, <laughs> But like, close enough. Yeah. But people who are like have highly trained senses toward audio or movies or whatever. Those are your, those are your files. You just don't want to be the pet kind. You just don't want right. to be, just don't be that guy. Yeah. Just don't be that. Um, I do want to do one other meet the band section. A, oh, min, a mini one. Real yes, quick. please. So play the jingle again and okay. let's do that. I want to do a quick meet the band section on take six because okay. we are talking with Merv Warren, yeah. who did the majority of the music for this movie, yeah. and uh, as well as Who Would Imagine a King from, yeah, from uh, Preacher's Wife, Preacher's Wife yeah. which maybe we'll talk on that briefly here in a second. Uh, but I he was in take six. Um, yeah. They had a big hit called I-L-O-V-E-U. Play right. a little of that yes. just so that you can hear what we're talking about uh, because there's not going to be lots of instruments. That's right. If uh, if all you know of acapella music is uh, what's their names the um, oh come on what's it called the pentatonics 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 yeah, uh, then you need to know that like there was a group before that that really burst through into the mainstream and that was Take Six. Trust in me. Like a 
There's a lot going on there. Dude. Yes. Dude, I freaking love them so much. Yeah. Dude. Dude. So if you're like, oh, that bass player is pretty good, that's not a bass player. <laughs> yeah, that's that, a bass dude. That is vocal bass. Uh, I wasn't going to start with him, but I will just because it caught my ear there. That's Alvin Shea um, on vocal bass. Man, I wish I could sing bass. Low notes. The sixth voice, if you will. I'll go. Maybe I'll go backwards. He's what they would call the sixth voice in yeah. Take Six. Uh, background vocals on the Bodyguard soundtrack. Stuff with James Ingram, Brian Duncan, and he sang on the Carmen the Standard album. Wow. So there okay. you go. Um, we'll jump back up to the first voice okay. or the first tenor. That'd be Claude McKnight, brother of another McKnight you may have heard of by the name yes. of Brian. Brian. Um, second tenor or second voice, Mark Kibble. Um, vocal arrangements with Alvin Slaughter, Donnie McClurkin, Aretha, and he wrote the Martin theme song. Really? So there you go. That's the great. Martin Lawrence theme song. Um, fourth tenor or fourth voice. I'm going there because uh, Merv falls in that third okay. spot. Uh, fourth tenor, fourth voice. Y'all know him as the founder of Wendy's. Yes, Dave Thomas. <laughs> no, his name's David Thomas. I don't know anything about him, but I just thought that joke was great. Okay, so, solid. There you go, founder of Wendy's. Dave Thomas makes a heck of a burger, dude. There you go. Miss, D- miss, miss your potato bar. Miss that, po- <laughs> miss that potato bar. Man, back in the dizzy <laughs> when they had nachos. Wendy's used to have the weirdest menu. So, so confusing. Yes, exactly. Do you uh, and there the ones that used to have the newspaper clipping tables yeah. remember those you'd sit mm. down at the tables and that's be right. those old newspaper clippings. yeah frosty vanilla or original chocolate original definitely yeah absolutely now i've had a strawberry one it's good Ooh, a strawberry strawberry is surprisingly good oh i need to but try it that. tastes just sort of like a this is a good strawberry soft ice cream soft okay. serve ice cream you know kind of but yeah the, the chocolate is forever king i'll keep that in mind on baritone or fifth voice cedric dent a uh, lot of stuff with yolanda adams now this okay. is going to take a turn then stuff with Kenny Rogers, Rodney Crowell, and Randy Travis. Wow. So he became a baritone singer for all these country albums. Wow. How about Weird. that? Cedric Dent. Um, and Merv Warren, who we're hanging out with, a native of Huntsville, Alabama, he was playing piano at age five, writing songs by age 10 um, in a popular vocal group as a teenager, play and sing on commercial albums. He went on to earn two degrees in music, master's degree in arranging, and he co-produced the This Is It album for Michael Jackson. Dang. I mean, among other things. Jeez. We will talk with all things Merv. Stick around. You're going to love this guy. Yep. Great stories. For sure. Um, okay. I have one more note on uh, Sister Act 2. Okay. But I think first we might want to no, stump the, the genius. Let's stump the genius. Okay. Let's you're going to back to back it here. Stump the genius. Stump the genius. Stump the genius. It's time to stump the genius. Jump up and take your part. I take your part. All right. Uh, put 35 seconds on the clock. Okay. If you can. Uh, we're going to do Famous Warrens because we're oh, hanging out wow. with Merv Warren. So 35 seconds. That's I got five people at seven seconds a person. Okay. Try to get these. I'm going to try to give you some clues. Um, if you get stuck, pass, and we'll because we want to try to get through Famous as many of the five. Warrens, 35 seconds. All right. Ready? Oh, wait. Hold on. I need to set it to something annoying. Yep. Let's, do a, let's do a classic. Where's the alarm here? Oh, yeah, that's so annoying. That's good. That's okay. good. Okay, 35 seconds. Let's get this on. Let's get this together. Sync up. Here we go. All right, ready? Famous Warrens. Go. 
Quarterback for the Oilers, number one, not Moon. the Sun. But the, yeah, it's the letter before G. Uh, oh, letter before H. I gave you the answer. What? Oh, G, Well, Warren G. Yeah. <laughs> uh, guitar player we interviewed, Allman Brothers, Government Mule. Uh, yeah. Not uh, Fruit Warren, of the Loom. Uh, Warren, no. My brain said Warren Zevon. Come on. Help me. It's uh, Warren. Uh, um, not uh, Fruit of Warren, the Loom. Oh, uh, my God. Uh, Pass. Government Mule Warren Haynes. Haynes, yes. Pitcher for the Braves. Uh, bad Warren Spawn. Kid. Yeah, good job of Satan. Really wealthy, uh, spelled like a place where we can get a lot of food. Uh, second Golden Corral. Um, what? Actor in Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Beatty? Did, yeah, Beatty. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. No, not Beatty. Oh, man. That was the sec- That was the next one. That was Warren okay. Buffett. Warren Buffett. Okay. Yeah, and then I jumped to the Buffett. next one. That's funny. Buffet, okay. Buffett. Well, I got Warren Beatty. I figured Warren Beatty would be on there somewhere. We got thrown off when I, I said G. Really I meant to say... <laughs> Do the math in my head. Letter before. I was like, what's before G? It's H. And then I just said G. Wow. All right. I'm Maybe taking partial credit. H-I- uh, uh, Warren I. Warren I, yes. Yeah. Man. Okay. Yeah. All if right. I'd have had extra time, okay. we could have got to Warren Beatty. That was the sixth one. All know. right. Well, my last note then on this track to back in the habit uh, is that Rolling Stone included it in the 25 greatest movie sequels list in 2014. So uh, apparently it's come long away enough from like what rock, number? Uh, in the top? It's at number. Uh, it is number 25 okay. of the top 25 sequels, according to Rolling Stone. So let's roll through this top 10 okay. uh, quickly, let's and then we'll it. go talk to Merv Warren. Number 10, Indiana Jones. You want to guess which one? Temple of Doom I'm going to go Last Crusade. Crusade. It is Last Crusade, yeah. which is surprising. But uh, Indiana Last Crusade is, is number 10. We did a whole episode on it on Cinema Snack Bar, actually, if you want Great. to go back and listen to it. Um, number nine is Break Into Electric Boogaloo. How about that? How about that? Um, I... Breaking is a movie about breakdancing, and it's kind of a legendary movie. Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, I only really know as a pop culture reference when people will say any like Terminator Two, Electric Boogaloo, like yeah. just <laughs> any any movie that ends in two, in two. saying That's saying hilarious. that. Uh, number eight is Toy Story Two. Okay. Number seven is Kill Bill Two. Number six is Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. Okay. Um, now we're getting into some pretty pretty heavy hitters here. Yeah. Like Kill Bill to me seems like a weird to be one of the greatest sequels of all time. I've not seen but, any of the Kill Bills. Okay, I've seen I've seen them. It was you know it's Tarantino. Yeah. Cool. Okay, all right. cutting people up with a with a uh, samurai blade. You know. All right. Cool. Um, yeah. Number six, Two Towers. Number five is The Dark Knight, the middle okay. film in the uh, in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Number four is Aliens, the sequel okay. to Alien, which I just saw last. Uh, December for the first time. It's still really good. I watched like, that in a cabin in the eighth grade on a church trip, and okay. there's that scary part. And yeah. I had a girl curl up in my, under my arm. Made me happy. Okay, it made me All love right. that movie. <laughs> love Alien. All that happened. All right. <laughs> number, uh, number three is The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, the the you know episode five in the Star Wars uh, thing. Number two is Terminator Two itself. T two Judgment Day. And then number one, I kind of saw this coming, Godfather Part Two. Yeah, makes sense. Widely considered A, the greatest sequel of all time, and B, maybe, maybe equally as good as Godfather yeah. One. Um, so get yeah. your entrance of De Niro in that one. That's right. Yeah. It is both I didn't think about this until I actually read this, but uh, Godfather Part Two is both a sequel and a prequel. A prequel because it's early. Yeah. So early, it shows uh, the Don. continued story of Michael Corleone, but also the origin story of Vito Corleone. Vito. His, his great. Dad, so yeah. Do you know uh, Robert De Niro had a kid the other day, and he's like seventy nine. No, good, good on. Wow, there. new dad at seventy nine. Okay, all right, man, that's interesting. Um, I feel like you you're you are 
a certain level of wealth to be able to do, yeah. so, you know what I mean? To be able to pull off something Not like that. Not going to see him graduate college, probably. Yeah, you know, so probably so. Just, you know, no, people, never know. People are living longer. People be living, you know? Right. And if you've got the money to keep living, go ahead and keep on right. living. I feel like De Niro will have the funds to pay as long yeah. of his care as he needs. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So the kid's, kid's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, I'm not worried about the kid, you know? <laughs> Okay. All right. That's going to do it for our coverage of the joyful, joyful medley from Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Um, and we're going to go talk to Merv Warren of Take 6, and we'll be back at the end to uh, tuck you in on the other side. This is the Great Song Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mervyn Warren, founding member of Take Six, musical genius of like biblical proportions, uh, producer, arranger, multiple time Grammy winner, Do writer, we, that, you name it. Is that enough? Have we said, is, is that good with you? Are we fine? Um, <laughs> Mervyn, thank you so much for joining us on the Great Song Podcast today. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, let's just start. I, I want to start with... Um, just listening back to that early take six stuff, it's like mind blowing. Like I forgot a little bit. Um, what is your background as far as like, I just want to know about the level of like ear training to be able to catch all that close harmony and then to go and then even take it as an arranger and as a producer to be able to tell other people like, I need this note and this note and this note, and we're going to do it real fast. (laughs) Just talk to me about your musical background and specifically ear training. Yeah. um, I thank you for that question. I, um, I started playing piano at three uh, my mom taught me, my mom taught me a few chords. Uh, and I just, I remember just kind of soaking it in. We had a piano in the house and I just kind of soaked it in. And then I, I would sit there for hours and I was like, oh, wait, here's another chord. Wait, here's another chord. Wait, this is not the one my mom taught me, but it works. <laughs> and I just started to, and then we listened to, my parents listened to, um, it wasn't a wide range of music, but it was an interesting combination. It was everything from like Andre Crouch and Edwin Hawkins to the Swingle Singers and Ferrante and Teicher. Um, and so I was getting some light jazz. Um, they weren't fans of, of pure jazz, but I was getting some light jazz. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then I would sit down and listen to cartoons. And I don't know if you remember, but like the theme songs to like the Jetsons. And the Flintstones, they were jazzy. People don't think of it that way, but they were jazzy. And I just, I I absorbed all of that stuff and I loved it. Um, Cut to, I'm about 10 years old and I had a vocal group in my, uh, my, I guess I was in fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And I had five girls. Um, They had actually initially asked me to just play the piano for them, which I had started to do. I'm skipping over things. I'd started playing piano for people around six or seven. And so here we are, I'm about 10 and these girls were singing and they asked me to play the piano for them. And I did. And then they said, oh, can you do an arrangement for us? It was some song I don't even remember. And I started arranging for them. And I said, well, there are five of you. I'm going to give you five parts. Um, and so we were doing that. They were doing five part harmony. Here we were 10, 11 years old doing five part harmony. It, it came naturally to me, I guess, is what I'm sort of saying is the long answer. And then I'll just add one more little thing. When I was about 15 or 16, uh, Mark Kibble, from, who, who later would be one of my compadres in Take Six, 
we were friends as teenagers. His uncle had introduced him to a vocal group called the Singers Unlimited. And the Singers Unlimited was this group of four people, but they stacked their voices to, to do these arrangements of eight and 10 and 12 and 20 parts. And once I started listening to them, it was like my whole world turned upside down. And I would spend hours, hours sitting at the piano, dissecting those arrangements because I didn't have any, any sheet music. I spent hours dissecting those arrangements. And, and so that's kind of an overview of how I came to have the relationship that I do with harmony. You you touched on a lot of things there. You cleared up. You started okay. at three. I thought you started yes. at five because I had a question about like, what are you playing at five? Is that like chopsticks <laughs> or are you like sight reading? Is it like church music, kids songs? So thank you for touching on that. Um, yeah. and you also mentioned that you were already arranging. I saw that at 12 and 13, you were arranging and some of your more complex pieces weren't always received. So, uh, yeah, that's right. So a lot of things to, to jump in there. Um, so yeah, take that uh, my, you want. <laughs> well, um, I did grow up in, in, in a religious community. I, I'm no longer religious now, but my grandfather was one of the ministers at, at our church. In fact, he was one of the elders, to be more specific. And he had a very complicated and fraught relationship with music. So anything that was not a major triad upset him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I am only slightly exaggerating there. So whenever we were asked to perform, we were known for, 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 for complex harmony. Um, and so anytime we were asked to perform, we did what we, people wanted us to do, but it upset my grandfather and he would have comments. And, and, and so we didn't, we didn't have a very good relationship. People loved my, everyone seemed to love my music except for my grandfather. <laughs> so uh, that was, that was an interesting uh, sort of caveat to my, to my upbringing. The, uh, you mentioned Mark Kibble. So we got to talk a little bit about Claude V. McKnight III and how you started yeah. a special blend. So I guess that's our first intro to the three of you guys together. Kind of how did that all come together? Yeah, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm almost forgetting which came first. I, I actually think Take Six came first, or the precursor to Take Six, which was Alliance. Alliance. Okay, yeah, and I know yeah. you changed your name. Is it because there was another group that was similarly named, or I wanted to clear that up? Yeah, we started as Alliance. I believe I was 16. Um, Mark was also 16 or 17. Um, and Well, we're the same age, so um, we're a month apart. So, um, but Mark had heard Claude singing with some other guys as a, quint a, a quartet. Okay. Mark heard Claude McKnight and three other guys singing. They, they had great voices, uh, simpler arrangements than we would later do. Mark invited himself into that group and they started singing five-part harmony. And then he said, hey, we got to bring Merv into this. Mark brought me in and we and we moved to six part harmony and Mark doing the arrangements. So that's how Take Six originally formed when 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 I was about 16. Okay. Um, and uh, and Claude was a part of that first quartet. So Claude, Mark, and I, and three other guys who are not the three guys who later signed with the we all signed with Warner Brothers and changed the name to Take Six. Because as you mentioned, yes. There was a there was a rock band or a metal band that had the name Alliance, and so we had to look for a new name. 
You uh, you had a song on Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing," considered one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, which is like, uh, did you realize at the time it was going to have the lasting impact that it had when you did it in '89? And did you get to be on set and meet Sam Jackson by any chance? <laughs> okay, no, we did not. We were not on set okay. because our songs, our songs, uh, you know, we were not on camera. Yeah. Um, so we we have a, a, a the, the full song that we co-wrote. Um, called Don't Shoot Me. Um, and then we did all of those uh, sort of radio, uh, W-E-L-O-V-E, and these sort of radio spots, which was kind of a, harkening back to stuff that we had grown up listening to and the Singers Unlimited. That was us kind of doing a little homage to those, those groups. So, um, no, we didn't know at the time whether this film or if this film was going to become as popular as it ultimately did. Spike Lee already had made a name for himself. And so we were honored to be working with Spike. Um, but we didn't know, you know, but you know, we, we were so busy back in those days after that first album, we were getting invitations just to work with so many people. And, and so it was like one day it'd be Spike Lee and the next day it was Johnny Mathis. And the next day it was Quincy Jones. And it was just, we were all over the place flying back and forth. We lived in Nashville and we were constantly flying to LA um, to, to record with people. And so those, it was just a really fun and busy and crazy and chaotic time. <laughs> when you're writing for film uh, and especially now that you've done, you've done so much of it and, and, and you know, we'll talk about some of that uh, here in just a minute, but uh, when you, you know, when a, a director uh, comes to you and says, okay, this is the film. Here's the gist. Maybe even here's some footage, you know, what is it that you're looking at that you're listening for when you're trying to capture sort of the essence of what they want? Um, what are the things, what are the markers for you that you're, that you're looking out for? Well, it's a combination of things. The, the picture, um, the story itself, of course, will dictate, you know, I mean, is it a sci-fi story? Is it a, is it a period piece? from the 1920s uh, to the current day. All those sorts of things are your decisions. The director is usually going to have um, some thoughts about what he or she wants. And I say usually because I recently worked on a film with a director who did not have um, a lot of um, thoughts about what she wanted. And so I really kind of had to you know, just kind of bring my own thoughts to the table. Um, the, you know, the script, the story, the visuals, you know, for me, it's the visuals. I, I kind of hate writing scripts. Don't tell anybody, <laughs> but I kind of hate reading. I mean, reading scripts. Um, it's just, um, I mean, I, I'm a voracious reader. I read books, but when it comes to reading scripts, I think it's because I know that ultimately this is going to be represented visually. I would almost rather wait and see the images because the images then begin to speak to me musically in a way that does not happen when I'm reading the script. That's good. Uh, and then maybe that's just a deficiency for me. I know that there are other composers who you know can't wait to dig into the script. But for me, it really comes to life when I see images. That's good. Um, and uh, and then you just sit down and you start, you know, things start to, you know, things start to come to you and you try things and you now the way it works is, <clears throat> excuse me, we um, we mock things up, even if it's a full orchestra, we mock that up and we attach it to the picture and send it to the director um, and he or she will look at that. And at the beginning, you're sort of trying things and pushing buttons and kind of literally and figuratively pushing buttons. 
I may try something really daring or really unusual just to see what is this director open to? Maybe they want something unusual or maybe they want something traditional. You figure that out at the beginning. And once you figure out what the palette of the, you know, of the, of the colors are that you're the musical colors that you're going to use. Once you figure out what that director likes, then you go, okay, these are the colors I'm using. And then you begin to create variations on that and to write music that fits the picture. And so when you're, you're working on a piece and you've kind of workshopped and these kind of things, do you get a certain feeling like in your gut or in your brain that just goes, all right, this is, I'm done with this. And this, and this would go for just generally songwriting as well. How, you know, do you have certain markers for you that, that you go, all right, this is, this is good now. Yeah, when I get a tear in my eye. And I know that sounds a little snarky, but it's actually kind of true. You know, and I'm working on things. And when I, when, when I, when I get goosebumps, when I give myself goosebumps, <laughs> That's good. I go, ooh, it's ready. It's ready. We listened to, uh, I listened to a lot of the similar music that you did growing up. You just mentioned Andre Crouch. I didn't know about that. I love his Live in London album, Andre Crouch and the Disciples. Huge fan of them. Mm-hmm. I also heard you got grounded for listening to Gratitude, the Earth, Wind, and Fire album. <laughs> de- de- <laughs> Devotion yes. is my jam. And not just because it's been sampled by Drake on Glow with Kanye, but because it's simple and nasty. And I think the restraint that Fred Wright has on drums is unmatched in that. Everybody talks about Maurice and Verdine, but you want to hear patience, yeah. dude. Fred Wright on Devotion is textbook. He locks in with the rim clicks and everything. So when I saw that that was like a, a project that was impactful to you in some way, I was like, oh, I'm so glad. I love that album. Well, yeah. I, and again, that harkens back to my, you know, very con- my conservative upbringing. Um, you know, I, my, my parents didn't let us listen to uh, popular um, R&B, um, it, but a, a buddy and I, you know, sneaked over to Kmart, but it was something like Kmart, and uh, we, you know, we bought Gratitude. We yeah. bought it, and um, I knew I couldn't take it home because I'd be getting in trouble. So he <laughs> took it home, but eventually he got in trouble, and then he ratted on me, and then I got in trouble, Snitch. and it was a whole thing. But the funny thing about that is, um, the funny thing about that is, 25 years later, I got a call from Earth, Wind & Fire asking me to produce a Christmas album for them. That's great. Um, which is really, and I actually called my mom and I said, you aren't going to believe this. And she (laughs) didn't, she didn't remember grounding me for buying that album. I remember it. She doesn't remember it. So I said, you grounded me when I was 15 for buying this album and now they want me to produce them. You're like, if I got grounded um, for just buying the album, what are you going to do to me for producing the next one? Producing it, yeah, exactly. And out of the will. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that Christmas project did uh, ultimately did not happen. I, I really did get the, the, the phone call, but that's back when Maurice was, was, was ill yeah. and unfortunately... Of the project just didn't it, it didn't ultimately take off but uh, but i will always uh, gloat in the <laughs> fact that i was uh, that they came back to me and, and asked about that that's great that's awesome <laughs> i have to thank you for producing one of my favorite 90s r&b singles uh and that oh. would be last night by as yet that, oh, wow. <laughs> that song has nourished me uh as as one of the <laughs> 
<laughs> for our Take Six listeners that are like, you might not enjoy that one as much as I I'm telling you what, that is one of the like all time like marriage bed singles. You know what I mean? That's like. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's so funny because those guys are, they are actually, should I say this? I guess I can. I think those guys are, 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 are plotting a comeback. Okay. Uh, nice. I got a phone call a, a few weeks ago and uh, I believe they're looking to uh, reunite. So we'll see what happens. Oh, that'd okay. Be great. That'd be great. We may, have to get a, we may have to get a hookup so Rob can thank them as well. That's right. Yeah. We'll send him a, yeah. send him a thank you. That's cool. Yeah. The, uh, I, know, yeah. I know you're, I, I, well, I don't know if you want me sharing your age, but I know you're 58, but you were born on a leap day. Have you done the yeah. math to how old you actually are taking that into account? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm 14 and a half. There you go. Okay. That's a- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, You'll I, be able I, to I, drive I, in yeah. six years. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Can't wait to get that driver's license. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Fourteen and a half. It's it's uh, it's amazing. Um, it's, uh, I, I guess I'm I'm either old. I guess I'm older than I look. No, I'm younger than I look. They, they, <laughs> the uh, so the preacher's wife is the best-selling gospel album of all time. Little drop in there. Aside from the royalties, what's been the greatest takeaway from that project? Like, obviously, who would imagine a king is a must around the Mosier House at Christmas time, um, um, and not just at Christmas time, but you can play. Time. But what's been the greatest takeaway from that from that project for you? You know, it was just um, working with working with Whitney. Yeah. I mean, that just you know, that's a um, as cliche as it might sound. That's just kind of a once in a lifetime voice. Yeah. Uh, and and there and no disrespect to the there are many 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 great singers still on the planet, and I love them all. But uh, but she was just something you know um, extraordinarily special. Yeah. And and the fact that she um, trusted me, asked for me. I wasn't originally asked to be on that project. There was another composer who had been asked to do that project, and and Whitney said, "No, I want Merv." That's which awesome. Kind of, which wow, kind of blew awesome. me away. And she knew me because. Take Six used to um, Take Six used to tour quite a bit with BB and CC Winans, yeah. and sometimes on BB and CC's shows, Whitney would appear um, unannounced. Mm. She would just come unannounced. She would just walk out on stage. The crowd would go wild, <laughs> and and then CC and Whitney would kind of go at it vocally, and people were losing their minds. And then we would all come on stage and we would sing together. Good. So over, over the course of a few years, I just even though I hadn't actually worked with her, she came to know who I was and what I did, and as I was working with other artists, blah blah blah. So when it came time for her to make this movie. Um, she asked for me, which was like, oh, my God, wow. Uh, and I was so honored. And then as I created these arrangements, and again, you're, you, you're, you're keeping, you have to keep the actual project in mind. So I, the arrangements had to be simpler for The Preacher's Wife because yeah. it, was, it wasn't a story about, you know, like, like there's another movie that I did uh, 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 more recently, um, 
uh, Joyful Noise yeah. with Dolly Parton and Queen Latifah, where I was I was asked to do these over the top arrangements because it's about a competition True. and it's True. about, you know, these choirs and, and, and how over the top can they be. But in The Preacher's Wife, it's it's she is the choir director in this kind of small church. And so the arrangements had to be interesting, but they had to be relatively simple because of the that's what the story called that's for good. but but the, but bringing her voice and adding her voice i mean to anything you know to chopsticks as you said earlier <laughs> you know adding her voice to anything just took it to another level and so just hearing her be you know singing my arrangements and then ultimately a song that i wrote was just you know an honor that uh, uh, that i will that i will never ever forget do you uh do you get to have the same in interaction with the cast from uh, Sister Act Two back in the Habit on Joyful Joyful? Like, do you get to interact with Whoopi and Young Lauren yeah. Hill and all those? That's freaking cool. Yes, and, and again, the big the big difference is when I'm when I'm arranging and producing songs that you will see performed um, on camera then I have to be involved very early in the process. And then I'm, I'm, I'm producing their vocals. I'm actually working uh, with, you know, with the actors. Um, and which is why those movies, The Preacher's Wife and Sister Act Two and Joyful Noise are in a different category than um, uh, the, the Spike Lee movie that we, yeah. that we made, Do the Right Thing, because yeah. we came in after the fact and recorded some things that they just dropped in. So it's a different different process. How does that work on a like an animated movie like Prince of Egypt? The stuff you do with that, where does that fall? Is that a yeah? Pr- I worked. I had a very small, just a did. I think I did an arrangement, um, a couple of arrangements, um, and yeah, you get you're contacted by the director or music supervisor. You're contacted by those who are putting the music together, and 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 you arrange and produce the music. Um, with parameters, they give you parameters, you arrange and produce the music with those parameters, and then they animate to the arrangements that okay. you've produced. So um, that's kind of how that process works. There you go. You've been on both sides of the, you know, they often put on the on the soundtrack of an album, they'll say, music from and inspired by the film, blah, blah, blah. You've been on both right. sides yeah, of that, you know true. what I mean? Do you, yeah. do, you, do you have a preference, whether you, whether you would be Music from or music inspired by? No, I don't think I have a preference. You know, I just enjoy being creative and, and it's, you know, whatever, whatever is required for a particular project. I'm, you know, I'm just happy to, happy to, to be working. You know, I yeah. mean, there are a lot of people who are working, happy, you know, to get hired. And um, I enjoy all of it. A lot of times, people ask me, "Do I do I prefer producing artists or do I produce prefer movies?" It's both because it's it's kind of a different part of the brain. It's a different process. I, I enjoy all of it, and it, it's hard to kind of um, it's hard for me to to say that I prefer one over the other because they both. You know, with, when you're producing songs, you get the gratification um, uh, much more quickly because it's a shorter process. When you're doing a movie, it can be months. It can even be over a year before you're finished, especially on a big movie like The Preacher's Wife or like Joyful Noise. I worked on those for like a year and a half. 
I think. So um, it's a much longer time before you get to sit back and pat yourself on the back and say, job well done. Um, so I, I, I enjoy all of the process. That's a great way to answer that because now you'll keep getting both to ask you. So that's a smart way to play. <laughs> yeah. So you've accompanied everyone. I mean, from the, me and Rob grew up in church, from Yolanda Adams, Larnell Harris, Sandy Patty. But yeah. uh, there's some heavy hitters right there. But there's one that I want to talk about that you hadn't mentioned is James Ingram. How cool was it getting to work with James Ingram? James Ingram was a lot of fun to work with. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, but the first memory that, that, I, that comes to mind might be one that you don't know about. In the year 2000, I got a call. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I got a call to be uh, the musical director for a wedding in Italy. Okay. Um, there was an American woman. Um, her name was Courtney Ross. She was the widow of Stephen Ross, who was the former CEO of Time Warner. Okay. Her husband had passed, and seven years later, she was remarrying. She's a very, very wealthy woman, um, and she decided to have this this lavish wedding in uh, Florence, Italy. And uh, she, she's the one who produced Quincy Jones's um, first documentary, the one called Listen Up. She produced that. So she called Quincy and said, Quincy, would you be the musical director for my wedding? Well, Quincy was busy. And so he says, well, I have a guy who can do it for you. And she referred her to me. So I became the musical director for this wedding. Long story short, we all fly over to Italy. We're over there for a couple of weeks because she had all of these lavish events. And James Ingram and Patty Austin were two of the many, many artists that she flew over. That's awesome. Yes. And so she flew all these people over. Uh, And if if you'll indulge me, I have one funny story about James. So James and Patty were singing frequently, and she had requested that they sing. There's a duet that Barbara Streisand and Celine Dion did years ago called Tell Him. Okay. Um, if you, I don't I remember, remember that song. And in the song, uh, Celine Dion is the younger person. See, Celine has fallen in love with someone, but she doesn't know how to say it. And she goes to her mentor, who is uh, uh, Barbara Streisand, and Barbara says, tell him. And that's what the song is about. It's just, you know, tell him how you feel, basically. So Courtney had requested that this song be performed at her wedding reception. And it was supposed to be James Ingram and um, not Patty, but it was James and one of the other vocalists. Well, at the last minute, James looked at the lyrics and he said, this is a woman's song. I don't want to sing it. (laughs) And I said, well, James, you can be the mentor. The mentor can be a man or a woman. Be either. But for whatever reason, he said, no, I'm not singing this song. I'm like, James. (laughs) James, they've, they've paid us. They've paid us very well. I said, I don't care. I'll sing anything. I'll get up and sing It's Raining Men if that's what she wants. You know? <laughs> he wouldn't sing it. So at the last minute, it was at the reception. Everybody was drunk and, you know, drinking, you know, expensive wine. They're passing out this wine that was $200 a glass. Um, and so at the last minute, I got up and sang the song because James wouldn't sing it. Damn, that's <laughs> So I, I was James Ingram's stand-in at a wedding in Florence, Italy. Yeah. <laughs> at least they weren't like, hey, we need you to sing just once. Can you do that, James, if you don't mind? Right. 
think, yeah, that, that would have been a different. different you could pull it up. That's right. If my wife and I ever renew our vows, we're going to do it's waning men at the at the ceremony. <laughs> we're going to have that just happened. Right? <laughs> yeah. it just happened. Well, I, I, I know you're not a, a huge sports fan, but you guys did you did perform the national anthem at the '88 World Series, which yes. that has arguably one of the greatest moments in sports. Kirk Gibson hit a home run. It was a big moment. Do you remember which game you sang at or which city you were in? Was it at Dodger Stadium or was it in Oakland? Do you remember which one it was? What I do remember, what I do remember about that World Series game is that the sound system was such that there were all of these echoes that were coming at us as we were singing. And with the, our, our complex harmony, it was creating this, you know, imagine that we sing in harmony for five seconds and then five seconds later, what we did five seconds oh, ago man. is coming at us. Get that bounce back. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. And so the, and, and our harmony was already, you know, we had intentional dissonance in our harmony, but now it was adding to it. So I remember we had to make the last minute decision to simplify our arrangement because of these overlapping, um, because of these overlapping um, harmonies and, and converging and kind of clashing. So we had to simplify the arrangement and then we kind of got bigger at the end. Uh, and we still, it was still a lot of fun, but we had to kind of make that decision because of the, of the acoustics in that arena. Since wow. you mentioned that venue, I know you've done Radio City Music Hall, Hollywood Bowl, Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Favorite yeah. venue, you get one to pick to vocal. Ooh. You got? Could you pick one if you had to, or a memorable moment from one of those venues? Wow. Okay, what you say? Radio City, Carnegie, Hollywood Hall. Bowl, Carnegie Hall. I mean, you could pick any of the ones. Yeah. If there's a different one that we're missing, if it's wow. a random church somewhere, or a random <laughs> coffee shop. And you know somewhere. what else I love? I love I love the Kennedy Center. Okay. Um, I mean, the Kennedy Center might be one of them. I mean, they're all amazing, but okay. Um, the Kennedy Center. In fact, I did the Kennedy Center three years ago. Um, there's an album that I produced um, called Handel's Messiah, a soulful celebration yeah. that we did in the 90s. And um, we finally performed almost the entire thing live at the Kennedy Center uh, three years ago, just before just before the pandemic began. Um, and so that's my most recent memory of being at a prestigious uh, venue like that. I mean, they're all amazing, but that's one of my favorites. No, that's a great answer. That's, that's one of my wife's favorites, actually. She's had that one on CD, the, the Handles Messiah. Yeah. So the Soulful Thank Celebration you. version. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, I can't not ask about This Is It. Um, uh, you know, um, what? how was the, the, the process of... You getting the phone call, like, I, I don't know the timeline of, like, if Michael had already passed, how that, how that whole thing happened. Just tell me everything, basically, about This Is It and your involvement. Okay, sure. Yes, Michael had already passed, um, and there was a gentleman who was, and I'm, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but there's a gentleman who was a friend of the family. He also happens to be an attorney. He also happens to have a gorgeous studio in Hollywood uh, that he owns. And somehow, I believe it's because they were pulling this out of the vault. They had pulled this song out of Michael's vault. And they trusted this particular gentleman to handle this. And so he took it upon himself to bring it up in his studio and to complete this demo. It was really just kind of a demo that was never, um, that was never completed. And um, because he knew of my work and, and he knew that Michael probably would have wanted vocals on this, he called me and said, hey, would you, would you do a vocal arrangement? 
And I said, sure, um, I'd be happy to. And then it sort of morphed into, oh, Michael's brothers are going to sing on this. So can you can you do an arrangement, teach it to them? They're going to sing on it. And, and then it was, and then I was listening to it and because it was sort of incomplete, I remember saying, you know, I would love to add, you know, a keyboard to this or, you know, some bass or something. I said, you know, would you, would you mind? It just, it needs, it needs some, you know, it needs some, some completing. Um, and he said, sure, go for it. And it just sort of morphed. And then it became, well, good grief, Merv, you're doing so much work. I'll just give you, I'll give you a co-producer credit. Um, which was generous of him, um, but also was was accurate because I was yeah. doing all of that work. Uh, and so that's sort of in a nutshell how it came to be. And I think three of the brothers came and forgive me because that was about 20 years. No, it wasn't 20 years ago. It was 2009-ish. So not, not 20 years ago, but about what? That would be about 13. Close to 15, yeah. About 13. Yeah. About, th- about three birthdays for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah. And so we weren't sure how many of them, but I think about three of the brothers showed up and, uh, and I recorded them and uh, we, you know, just kind of put it together and we just sort of kept adding to it, to just doing what we could to sort of make it listenable, to kind of sort of complete this, this recording to the best of our ability. That's it in a nutshell. So what I'm, what I'm taking away is, are you saying that the, the piano that's there was not there to begin with? Ooh, it's been a long time since I've listened to that. So I don't remember. I, I just remember adding some parts. Okay. I don't want. I don't want to. If there was a piano, there might. Have, there had to have been a keyboard there. So we left what was there, but we 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 added to on. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I apologize. I just I haven't listened to it recently, so I, I I don't remember every detail. I just remember we augmented what was there yeah. to sort of. It's all right. You, you've had your hands busy with a lot of projects <laughs> since then. That's all right. You've yeah. played a lot of stuff. Yeah. Man, this has been fun. Yeah, we hope you had a good time. We're so glad to get to catch up with you. You've been great. Hope you've loved this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. It's, it's been a blast to talk with you. We have a, one question that we ask everybody. So you're on yeah. tour, uh, either in a group by yourself let's say you're on tour in the future you go into a gas station what is your gas station snack food of choice and while you're thinking of your gas station snack food i'll tell you mine i would get a three musketeers bar when i was growing up my mom would say you could have any candy bar you want and it's the most ounces so i'd get a three musketeers bar (laughs) (laughs) what is your what's your gas station snack food gas station snack food if they have it, it would be golden Oreos. Oh, okay. okay. Solid. We had an Oreo guy last right. round yeah. and we started getting crazy. In the golden Oreos. Yes. Okay. With the vanilla. Yeah. The golden Oreos. Yes. The vanilla. Yes. Man, that's great. Yes. I love I like it. The, yes. Uh, but they don't always have those. So if they didn't have those, it would probably be a payday. Okay. Okay. Dude, that wow. was the other guy. Yeah. We had two people on. One guy said payday and one guy said Oreos. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. You, just, you just combined Jacob Yoffit and Rolling Hills' <laughs> yeah, answers into one. one. Man, that's yes. crazy. The, uh, yes. the cool thing about and the smart thing about you being a great producer is you're like, I have a plan, but I also have a backup plan yeah. should that not <laughs> land the way I want. If that vocal doesn't quite hit the way I want it, it's okay. I'm going to stack this underneath. You have a plan B. It's there you go. Brilliant. Well, Mr. Warren, this has been great. Thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Excellent. All right. Well, I look forward to it, guys. Thank you so right. much. Thanks we'll so much. We'll see All you. right. Thank Peace. you. Bye bye. This is the Great Song Podcast.
And that was Merv Aloysius Warren. I don't, I don't know his middle name. Just took a wild stab there. Uh, that was Merv Warren of Take Six and uh, did such amazing work on Sister Act 2 and Preacher's Wife and Invincible and so much other very cool stuff. One of probably the most brilliant minds that we've talked to musically. Yeah. Um, just a real master at his, at his craft when it comes to um, not just singing, not just writing, but arranging, yep. you know, the, the arranger mind in my brain is a, is a different kind of beast. You know what I yep. mean? Like it's a, a different level of knowledge music brain yep. that can think through the things that they, that they think through. Um, so yeah, really cool to have Merv on the show and uh, man, really cool to have you guys listening. Thanks yeah, so much thanks for, for hanging out. Movie little, month. Here we go. Time with us uh, at uh, movie month this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with some more coverage of uh, another great song from a great movie. Maybe great movie. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see you guys next week on the great song podcast. <laughs> What am I doing? Have I hosted a show before? <laughs> we'll see you guys next week with another great song. Until then, I'm Rob. I'm JP. Go listen to some music.